the last 12 years, I've been formally a pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. But before that, there was 18 years when I worked for an investment banking firm. And before you go, well, Dave, I don't see you in an investment banking firm. How would you ever survive? Okay, the point is it was sort of like I was the final retail broker to the, invest to the investor. So I didn't go, do, go out and do the deals. I sold the products to the individual investor for their portfolio, sort of probably like a Charles Schwab kind of experience. But those 18 years in corporate really did shape me. And during that time, I was a believer and was pretty open about my faith at, at work. And I had another, met, there were about 12 brokers in my office. And one of them particularly always would corner me in a nice way. He'd always bring up something about Christianity. But it was always a little, it was philosophical and it was somewhat always like antagonistic. You know, it's kind of like, how can I ask like the edgy question about Christianity this week? And um, we'd have great conversations, you know. But one day we were in the lunchroom at work and he turned to me and he, his name was Peter Shanovich. And he turned to me and asked me this question. And I don't even remember what the question was, but I remember the answer I gave him. And the answer I gave him, I turned out, it was just ridiculous. I said, Peter, if you really knew Jesus, you would never have asked me that question. And I turned around and walked out on him. And sometimes, with all of us, there comes a moment in time when kind of like we need to like face up to what's the real question inside and what's the real important thing that we have to deal with. And the sermon I'd like to give today is about a person in the Bible, Nicodemus, who Jesus actually did that for in a very abrupt way and flipped him over and took him on a journey of conflict. In this, um, now, a lot of people, when you say Nicodemus, everybody thinks, everyone's, oh, yeah, I remember Zacchaeus. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the little short guy with the tax collector that was up in the tree that Jesus went to his house. Okay. This is not the same story. This is about Nicodemus. So we're going to go through this story together, all right? So, and I would like your participation. I'm going to ask you some questions. It's okay if you don't know the answer, but you might be able to guess and you might be right. And I would like, I'm also always, whenever we read the scripture, I'd like to read it with you. So if you'd participate with me. And on the first reading, which is from John chapter 3, I would ask if you would please stand in honor, in honor of the Holy Scriptures. Okay? And let's read it together. Now there was a Pharisee. Now these are all clues. Okay? Stick with me. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, 
from those eight or nine verses, there are some, there are some questions I have for you. And the first one is, it says that he came and he was part, Nicodemus was part of the Jewish ruling council. Now, guess out of the blue, there was a name for the Jewish ruling council at that time. Does anybody know what it was? What was it called? The Sanhedrin, right. And you don't have to raise your hands. Just shout it out for me, okay? Like, this is just a, this is competition, okay? (laughs) All right. We'll see if the women win or the men win. All right. So it was the Sanhedrin. And what this meant, these were 70 men. Keep in mind, like, I know this is sexist, but at that time, let's face it, men did rule, women did not have these positions. So I'm not trying to be sexist. It was just the culture of the time. All right, but there were 70 ruling leaders, and they were very powerful, influential people with status. They were the elite of the religious field. Okay? Now, another question that I have for you is, what about why was it after dark? Okay, what was it about the dark? Any ideas? The moon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there it is. <laughs> Why do you think he came at night? Secret, so no one would see him. And why would, why, why would he not maybe want anyone to see him? Because he was what? Because he, he had a high status, and that status implied what? Talking. Pardon? Talking. Talking, yes, that's right. Okay. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers, how was the relationship between Jesus and the Jewish rulers at that time? Not real good, right? Okay, there was a lot of conflict. Jesus' ministry was going very public, and Jesus was a threat to the Sanhedrin because he was teaching something that didn't line up with all of their rules and education, right? Next, it says that he was a Pharisee. Now, There's two different types of Jewish rulers. One was a Pharisee. What was the other kind? Pardon? Sadducee. And what was the the distinction of a Pharisee in comparison to a Sadducee particularly? What did the Pharisees believe that were kind of unique? In the resurrection, the life after death, right? What else does that entail? Anything like anything else to just broaden that just a bit? But the Sadducees did not believe in life after death, but the Pharisees did. What else did that kind of entail besides just life after death, eternal life? The spiritual. The whole spirit mystery, the spiritual realm, angels, you know, miracles. Jesus was doing miracles, right? And like this kind of thing lined up with a Pharisee. Okay, so there's more, um, let's put it this way, a Pharisee compared to a Sadducee would have just a little bit more belief system that would be a little bit more in line with the way Jesus was um, expanding his ministry, okay, and the things that were going on, like these were truly miracles. In this case, he acknowledges, he says, Rabbi, he respects him, he says, Rabbi, um, uh, anyway, let's move on. Okay, so what did it take to attain this kind of status? Okay, to get into the Sanhedrin, what do you think it took? (laughs) Name it. Mm -hmm. Education. Okay, so you had to be a big brain to get into this crowd. Okay, this took discipline, gifting, education, probably money. 
he probably would have been a Stanford PhD. So, like, he would have fit into Palo Alto perfectly. He probably would have lived here. This would have been his culture. We would have been very, very comfortable, probably, with his particular way of life. Next, from the scriptures that we just read, what stands out to you as far as what was his purpose for his visit? What, why did he come? You remember from what we read? You know what? It doesn't say. I'm sure there was a purpose, but it actually doesn't say. The text just goes right from his, Rabbi, we know that you're sent from God because you couldn't do these things if you weren't. And Jesus just starts answering him. Sort of like in that lunchroom that day where Shanovich asked me a ridiculous question in my opinion and I just said look if you knew Jesus you wouldn't be asking these questions like Jesus went right for the juggler he just got deep with him real fast and next next of all last of all Jesus left him with a with a real challenge Jesus left this man with a lot of information that he didn't know what to do with at this point And now Nicodemus starts on this journey of what I would consider to be a journey of internal conflict. Not necessarily external, but internal conflict. What do I do with this information that I've been given? And what does this information mean? Okay. Now, I have a lot of personal empathy for Nicodemus. I like this man. Number one, he was a religious leader. Technically, I work for a church. I'm a religious leader, right? There is the church industry, right? He was in an industry, all right, on some level. Jewish ruling council, that's like a government. They decided, they held court. They could do things that were legal. They had power. Plus, he was a teacher of the law, the holy scriptures, okay? He had a lot of responsibility. I relate to this. Secondly, he probably had some honest questions, And now his life just got very extremely complicated through this nightly visit. Then I have a lot of empathy for him regarding his work, which let's just call the firm, okay? He did work for a firm, okay? The Sanhedrin. And I relate to this particularly in that Menlo Park Prez is a church, but it is a corporation in its own sense. And I worked 18 years in the corporate industry. I understand quotas. I understand that your sales get charted and posted every month. I understand what it is to live on full commission. I understand what it is to deal with all of the structures of corporate life. All right. And in this particular case, the firm that he worked for, his colleagues did not like Jesus at all. His firm is the is the corporation that eventually crucified Christ. And he's part of this firm. Jesus threatened his job and all of their jobs. So, of course, it does kind of make sense that maybe he would come at night. We don't know if the firm sent him, maybe to scout out Jesus and to understand a little bit more, or whether he came just for his own curiosity. But, you know, I love this guy. You can, you can fault him for all sorts of things, but I, this would be a friend of mine. If he was living today, I have many friends like Nicodemus today that I will get the privilege of working with and consider it a joy. So in this case, I believe he was just really curious 
and that he had a heart for God. But let's, uncontent, let's unpackage a little bit of the content. Oh, you know what? I missed the slides. See? Look at this. So see, the firm, the people were for him and the firm was against Jesus. Okay, that's that slide. Let's keep going. What else did I miss? Okay, came at night. Okay. Okay, now we're, we're almost ready. <laughs> Sorry, like I said, I don't do this at the same time. Anyway, so let's just, but let's unpackage. He just, Jesus just talked to him about water, being bored of water and of the spirit, and he just talked to him about wind, right? You know where the wind blows, and you don't, but you, you don't know where it's come from or where it's going, but you know when it's been there. So let's just, let me give you some, some facts, some hardcore stuff, some technical stuff from commentaries. Lots of different things about the water, born of the water, born of the spirit. You've got Old Testament teaching where the children of Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea. That was like the Old Testament version of baptism, right? You've got natural birth with the embryonic fluid breaking, right? Natural birth, spiritual birth. Kind of like, you know, flesh given spirit. You've got, um, you've got the issue of um, John the Baptist was baptizing at that time. He would have known about this. John's calling people to repent. Repent of your sins and be transformed and be regenerated. And then you've also got sort of like a double emphasis because oftentimes in the scriptures, water and spirit are kind of used synonymously. So the point is, okay, no, it's right. you can get all sorts of ideas of like, what exactly did he mean by that? But the point is, right, that something spiritual had not occurred in this Jewish religious leader that Jesus was calling out and saying, you're not living in the kingdom of God. You know a lot about the kingdom, but you're not living in it. You're not experiencing it. And it requires a spiritual birth that you have not experienced yet. And then he talks about the wind. And the wind oftentimes is likened to the breath of God. And God breathed over, the, you know, the earth was without form. And God breathed on the earth, and it, he created. And God breathed into the life of Adam. And when Jesus, before he left his disciples, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, right? So there's a lot in the scriptures about the wind being the breath of God. And the breath of God always brings life. It's like where life comes from. And in both of these points... Nicodemus was needing something of God that he could not create on his own or get himself. So let's keep moving. Read along with me again. You don't have to stand this time, but let's read. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. I can't hear you. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here it sounds like Jesus is kind of putting him down. It's like he appeals to his education. He appeals to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is what Nicodemus was an expert in. 
he would have been an expert in the scriptures. And he appeals to me, he says, you, a teacher of Israel, and I'm talking to you about earthly things and you don't really get the basics, and yet how do I talk to you about heavenly things? You know, sometimes as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, sometimes I have to go back and like, okay, have I forgotten the basics of what this is really about? Am I living it out? Am I living in the kingdom of God? Am I experiencing the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit in my life? And then he talks about, well, I'll skip this part, okay? I'll skip that particular part. It's not that. Again, it goes back to commentaries. And if you want to know some specifics about what the commentaries say about we speak of what we have known, whether that was talking about Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or whether that was the community at large and could, everyone could see the miracles that were going on. But Jesus appealed to his education in this case. He talks to him about Moses. He says, do you remember when the serpents came out and were killing the children of Israel in the, old, in the desert, Moses lifted up a snake on a pole, was instructed by God, And he said, if anyone looked on this snake, and now that has become our medical symbol, right, for medical care, you were healed and you didn't die from the snake bite. And then he likens that and he says, so he he takes him right back to his education and he says, I am the son of man. And when the son of man is lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He's giving him a clue. Again, he's dumping like, clues, mysterious clues of all of these keys to the kingdom of God into his lap. But just like you, he didn't know what to do with it, right? So then what he does is he then lays on, and this I think proves that Jesus really loved him. Like he's kind of chastising him for not getting it, but this next one really proves that he loves him. Let's read this together. The most famous scripture in all of in all of the world. Read. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you were a scientist, and the law of relativity, the, the theory of relativity that Einstein discovered, if you were a scientist and someone were to give that to you before it had been discovered and realized, you realize the gift you would be given. Here's a guy that's supposed to teach the people that knows the scriptures, and Jesus is giving him the framework to put it all in. These two verses. It's like, God so loves you, Nicodemus, that he gave me, (laughs) okay? Now, there's no way that at that moment, again, that Nicodemus could have understood. But you realize the gift Jesus was giving? And you realize the love? Like, Jesus loved this man. He's not putting him down. It's like he's trying to give him something and he's giving him clues that he can use even for his work, all right, to make him a better leader, And what I see is now he goes away from this encounter and he's got all this information and doesn't know what to do with it. But God is going to use it. So let's go on. So what happened to Nicodemus after this? 
Let's go. Now we've, we're in John chapter 3. Now we pop to John chapter 7. Okay? Four chapters later. Let's read this. Oh, so the Jewish ruling elders sent out the guards to capture Jesus and bring him in. And here's what's happened. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. What do you hear? What do you hear in his reply to his colleagues? Thoughtfulness, wisdom, like upholding what they were taught to do in the first place, uphold the law, abide by the law, hold it out to the people. He's trying to bring sense, sensibility back into their, into their presence. But see what he's up against? Like the man is up against a firm all of his colleagues. And there's one thing in here that frightens me the most in this passage. It's right in this right here. Anybody have an idea? You take a guess. I won't put, I put, won't put anybody down for guesses. But there's something in here that frightens me deeply as a minister of the gospel of Jesus. What could it be? that you have to be from a certain place to be accepted. And what are they referring to that place about? What are they connecting that place, Galilee, to? What are they, what are they connecting it to? I'm just trying to lead you down the line here. Any other thoughts? It can be from all over the board. Got an idea? Okay. What about, what are they using here to prove that Jesus is not the Messiah. Is it right? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of it. Where are they looking to get that information? Where do they get that information? From what? Yes. Jesus, they know him to be from Galilee, right? But where are they getting this prophet does not come from Galilee? History, the script, and the scriptures. Their very knowledge of the scriptures, they used technically to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah. Their knowledge of scripture was not the knowledge, the spirit knowledge of the spirit that wrote the scriptures. I am a preacher's kid. I have heard thousands of sermons. I have worked around church all of my 54 years. The scariest thing to me is sometimes what we can do with scripture. That frightens me to the core personally. 
We can abuse scripture. We can beat people over the head. We can do things with it that we want to do. And that's exactly what they did to prove what they wanted to believe. And they were right in the sense that there wasn't a prophet in the Old Testament that came out of Galilee. But you know what? They didn't, get all, they didn't line up all the facts. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And because, he was a, because Joseph was warned, they went to Egypt, right? And out of Egypt, I will call my son. And when he came back, when he came back to Israel, he was afraid of Herod's son, who was still on a rampage. And so he hid them. He hid Jesus in Galilee. So it's like, and then Jesus' public ministry starts and he comes to Jerusalem. So it's like Jesus fulfilled all the scriptures, but they just missed this one little piece and they used it to, to prove like these ignorant mobs, like the people are ignorant, but they're following the Messiah and their scripture knowledge is helping them prove to not follow the Messiah. That is just frightening to me. And I think it just keeps us in a place of, Lord, please, may, you, may your spirit be working in us that we would coincide with the spirit that wrote your scriptures, that we take it and interpret it in the right direction of where your heart is. Last of all, and this is my conclusion, there's one last piece in the book of John that brings up Nicodemus. There's lots of people we hear about in the Bible, like the lame that walk, the blind that see, we don't find out anything about what helped. We don't know where they went, what happened to them. We know a little bit of what happened to Nicodemus. Let's read it together. John 19. Whoop. Jesus has just been crucified and is dead. Let's read. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Isn't that beautiful? Who shows up? Disciples didn't bury Jesus, right? Two rich guys. Two rich guys that were secretly, secretly connected to Jesus without going public until Jesus was lifted up. Just think of that conversation at night, that night. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Jesus is lifted up. Who crosses the line? Nicodemus crosses the line at that point. Do you think he lost his job? Pretty sure. Nothing in the scriptures talk about the Jewish rulers ever changing their minds about how they felt about Jesus. You think he's sitting on the Sanhedrin anymore? Not likely. You think he's got his resume out there? He had a lot to lose. You know, he had a lot to lose. He had status, education, power. He was the elite. I don't fault him for anything. But in the end, 
when it came to bury Jesus, he went and buried, buried the man that he came to talk to at night. All of this took place. You know, forget, Jesus' public ministry was about three years, right? From beginning to end. All of this didn't ramp up with the Jewish rulers in the beginning. So this could have taken all in the space of about six months to maybe 18 months to two years. We have no idea how long that took in between. But he went on a journey of conflict. And he had to make a decision eventually. And I bet you sometimes he wished he'd never gone that night. You know? Even though even though it brought him to the kingdom of God and to spiritual birth, even though I bet sometimes he wished he hadn't had that conversation, because if he hadn't had the conversation, he wouldn't, have had, he wouldn't have had to deal with all that information that Jesus had given him. So here's just a couple questions for you. Do you work with a Nicodemus? Are you a Nicodemus yourself? Do you know a lot about scripture, but have you experienced life in the kingdom of God and spiritual birth? Jesus gave Nicodemus truth and time, but he didn't make his life easier. Ravi Zacharias has a very famous quote. It's this. Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. He died to make dead people live. Nicodemus was a good guy. He wasn't a bad guy, but he was dead. And Jesus wanted him to live in the kingdom of heaven. And I have one last thing. It's probably a preacher's kid thing for me, but you know, that night he talked about a lot of things. The snake being lifted on the pole. If I be lifted up, you draw all men to me. He talked about the wind, right? And we don't hear anything else in the scriptures anymore except for these three places about Nicodemus. And, but it's like, well, what happened to him? Where did he go? You know, in Acts chapter 1, it talks about 120 people that were praying in the upper room that day in Jerusalem. When the, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came. And it came as what? How did it come? Tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind, right? It's described that way. Tongues of fire, a mighty rushing wind. I believe, I believe that Nicodemus was there. If you're bearing Jesus, you were probably there in that upper room that day. And I believe he got to experience wind like he never knew existed before. And that is my prayer for us as the body of Christ, that we would live, experience, and walk in the newness of new life, spiritual life in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. So Jesus, we humbly put our hearts out there to you and uh, respect you. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know you are from God. He respected you. You, have, um, you know what's best, Lord. And today, again, we freshly surrender. We, refresh, we surrender our will, and we just surrender to what new life in the kingdom might look like for us. Lead us on the journey, hand in hand with you. Reveal to us our call. 
revered, revealed to us what you have prepared for us to do. Fill us with your spirit's strength that we actually have the courage and the strength to move forward to what you ask of us. In your precious name, Jesus, amen.